Daniel announced it, but in case you missed it or maybe came in after he announced it, if you are an attender here, you're not a member yet, but you're an attender, we'd like you to stay after service, come up to the front just for 15, maybe 20 minutes. We had a big announcement for our members last week, and uh, we want to share that with you too. So if you're not a member, but you're an attender here, just stick around for a few minutes afterwards. We want to make sure that we have a, a chance to talk to you today. In the first century, when Paul was writing this letter that we're studying to the Ephesians, there was a, a culture among Christians that is really foreign to us. And so if we don't understand it, then his words, especially the words that we're going to read today, they will make very little sense. And then even worse, they will make very little difference to us. And specifically, what I'm talking about is the first century conflict and hostility between Jews and Gentiles, uh, even between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. That's a conflict and a hostility that none of us experience today, but it was a massive part of Christian culture in the first century. Jews, people who belonged to the nation of Israel, they understandably took great pride in being the historical people of God. I mean, they were the people, beginning with Abraham, that God had chosen among all the peoples of the earth they were the people that God had chosen to commit himself to out of all the people of the earth. God revealed himself to them. God made a covenant to them. God made promises to them. He ruled over them. He gave them his law and he established them as the greatest nation on earth. And so the Jews, they had a label for anyone and everyone who was not a part of Israel, and it was Gentile. And at the time Paul writes, there is this lingering conflict and hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Let me give you two illustrations of this. The first is a quote from William Barclay as he talks about the, the temperature in the first century between Jews and Gentiles. He writes, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. 
Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. That is hostility. And the second illustration of this hostility between Jew and Gentile was evident in the very structure of the temple in Jerusalem. So at that temple, as you moved out from the central place of worship, there were these various courts that were restricted to certain people. And so closest to that place of worship, you had a court that was reserved for the priests, and then a court that was reserved for the men of Israel, and then a court that was reserved for the women of Israel, and then there was a wall. And then you took some steps down, and then there was another wall. And on the other side of that wall, farthest away from the temple, was what was called the court for the Gentiles. We've discovered pieces of that wall that was destroyed in 70 AD, and we've actually found the following inscription. No man of another nation is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensued. So, Jews and Gentiles were historically alienated from one another, and they were hostile toward one another. And then, imagine this. And then, through Christ, the promised Jewish Messiah, God expanded his affections beyond the nation of Israel and indiscriminately offered salvation and relationship to him to all people. No longer just the Jews, no longer just this nation of Israel, but now his affections were turned outward to all nations, so that John 1.12, what Jesus said was true, to all who did receive him, that is, receive Christ, believe in Christ, who believed in his name, to all of them God gave the right to become children of God. So not, no longer was just the nation of Israel, the children of Abraham, biologically the children of God, it was all who would put their faith in Christ. That, as you can imagine, right, was a very tough pill for Jewish Christians even to swallow. And this is very obvious as you read the New Testament. This conflict comes up and needs to be addressed over and over again. Their basic contention was this. To the Jewish, to the, to the Gentile Christian, their basic contention was this. 
Your faith in Christ is not enough. Your faith in Christ is not enough. Like your Gentile forefathers in the Old Testament, and this was true, like your Gentile forefathers in the Old Testament who wanted to worship God, you must first become a Jew. You must join our nation and you must observe our laws. In other words, the proud Jewish response to what Paul has just said in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. The proud Jewish response to that is, and also, that's true, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and also, you must be circumcised, and you must observe our laws. Well, Paul knows the contention. He anticipates that reaction, and so he writes our text today, chapter 2, Verses 11 through 22. And he writes it, if you look, not to confront Jewish Christians, though he does that elsewhere. He writes these verses to comfort Gentile Christians. To remind them the cross of Christ tore down the walls between you and Israel, and between you and God. May God use these words to remind us of the same thing, that because of the cross of Christ, because of the cross of Christ, there is not a single real wall separating us from God or from one another. Let's pray for that. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you for your promised Holy Spirit who will help us to understand so that we would know you more, love you more, and serve you more. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're using one of those church Bibles in front of you, we're still on page 917. There will be three parts to the sermon, and it's in accordance with the three parts of this passage. Here they are. Number one, before the cross. That's verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Part two, the cross. That's verses 13 through 18. And part three, after the cross. Very simple. And that is verses 19 through 22. Part one, what they, that is these Gentile Christians, what they were before the cross of Christ. Part two, what Christ accomplished on his cross. And then part three, what they were after the cross of Christ. So let's begin with part one. Look with me in chapter two, verses 11 through 12. This is what they were before the cross of Christ. The target 
of these verses is Gentiles, and they are curiously introduced in verse 11. Therefore, remember, Paul writes, that at one time, that one time, it'll become clear, is before the cross. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles, and here's his description of them, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Pause. I want to quickly explain why these Gentiles were called by some the uncircumcision. The Jews, they had a code that they lived by. And this code that they lived by was included in the law of God that had been given to them through Moses. And this expansive law, it included many rules and regulations that marked Jews off from the rest of the world. And one of these laws required that every male in the nation of Israel would be circumcised as a sign that they and they alone, as people of Israel, were the people of God. And so they took great pride in this. Some even called themselves and referred to themselves as the circumcision. And they looked down on those who they felt were not the people of God, who were not marked off as the people of God, who did not have the sign of the people of God. They referred to them as the uncircumcision. And that was evidence of the hostility that Paul is addressing here. So Paul is speaking directly to those Gentile Christians who had been discriminated against. And he wants to, he says, remember, he wants them to remember something about their past. What does he want them to remember about their past? Five things. Let's read them. All in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Did you hear each of them? Remember, Paul says that you were at that time, that is before the cross, you were, number one, separated from Christ. John 14, 6 says that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God the Father is through Christ. And so to be separated from him as these Gentile Christians were is to be what Paul described in chapter 2, verse 1. They were dead in their sin. Not only that, number two, they were 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were alienated from the nation of Israel. They were not part of the family. They were not part of the only family in all the world that was under God's care and protection. Third, they were strangers to the covenants of the promise. God made, we read about these in the Old Testament, God made a promise. He made a promise to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Israel. And God promises to save them. And no matter what happened to Israel, those promises, they stabilized Israel. They secured Israel. And the Gentiles did not have them. They were strangers to the covenants of the promise. And so number four, no hope. They were a hopeless people. They were separated from Christ. They were strangers to God's promises. They were alienated from God's people. And so they were without hope. They were, number five, without God in the world. They were in the world, but they were in the world without God. In summary, as Paul will say in the next verse, they were far off. So that is what they were before the cross of Christ. They were a people alienated from God and his people. Let's look at part two. In verses 13 through 18, this is what Christ accomplished on his cross. Look at verse 13, which is the central verse of the entire passage. We've just read in verses 11 through 12 what they were. And then these two words begin verse 13, very similar to the two words that were in verse 4 above. But now. That is what you were, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul is saying you are no longer verse 12. You're no longer verse 12. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That means the cross. You have been brought near by the cross of Christ. In his flesh, he'll say in verse 14. He'll say in verse 16, through the cross. Let's keep reading about what Christ accomplished on his cross. Verse 14. For he, that is Christ, himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. Not merely the one who brings it. Who has made us both. That is, Paul is writing Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one. 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So, track with Paul up to this point. Somehow, Paul is saying that somehow the the death of Christ has united the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer. It has, what did he say? It has made them both one. It has, what did he say? Broken down the wall of hostility that we've thought about. It has broken down that wall of hostility between them. Well, how has it done that? How has the blood of Christ done that? Verse 15, by, this is how Christ did it. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Those laws, Paul refers to them here and says Christ abolished the law. Those laws that defined the nation of Israel defined them and thereby alienated Gentiles, Christ abolished that law. But wait a minute. Some of you might be thinking, what about Matthew 5.17? Or maybe you didn't know the reference, but you're thinking, haven't I heard In the Bible, didn't Jesus himself say that I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? And that seems like it's in direct contradiction. Uh, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then here Paul says that the way he has made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles is by, there it is, right there, verse 15, abolishing the law. The law. There is a clue when he says the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. But we got to figure this out. There's not a contradiction here, of course. God didn't say one thing and then I didn't say that really well. Let me try to say that a different way or change his mind. So which is it? Did Jesus come to... Uh, abolish the law, or did Jesus come to fulfill the law? You know where I'm going with this. The answer is yes. The, The answer is both. If you read the law of God, and I mean if you go read, you know, like not this afternoon, but if you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, I mean this is referred to as the law. If you read the first five books of the Old Testament, spread out through those books. It's not all law, but spread out through those first five books of the Old Testament. You will find a lot of law, and you're going to find different kinds of law. You're going to find, for example, moral laws that obviously last forever. Like the Ten Commandments, for example. They they last forever. But you'll also find what we could call state laws or nation laws. 
And these laws were for Israel, and they regulated civil life. And they regulated worship in Israel. Well, Christ came to fulfill all these laws. Christ came, and he was the first and only to fulfill them. That is, he perfectly obeyed all of them. No one has ever, no one is, no one ever will obey God's law perfectly. Jesus obeyed all these laws. He fulfilled them in that sense. He was also the fulfillment of those laws. Many of those laws that directed worship for Israel and civil life for Israel, they were preparing them and and, and paving the way and pointing them to Christ. For example, they had these laws regarding a sacrificial system. They had these sacrifices they had to make over and over again and very specific and very detailed. And it was overall teaching them that you're a sinful people. And so blood has to be shed. God's not winking at this. God's not just looking the other way. He's not sweeping it under the carpet. A price must be paid. Now those were all fulfilled in Christ when he came and was He's called in Revelation, he's called by John, the Lamb of God. He was the perfect sacrifice. So Jesus comes, and in that sense, he is the fulfillment of the law. He obeyed all the law, and so here's how how the law is fulfilled and abolished at the same time. And so in Christ personally fulfilling them, the laws, he abolished them for us, in the sense that John Stott put it. I couldn't say it better. Christ fulfilled all these laws, was the fulfillment of all these laws, which abolishes the law for us in this sense. Jesus abolished both the regulations of the ceremonial law and the condemnation of the moral law. So these regulations of these ceremonial laws that were meant to regulate civil life and worship for the Jews, those have been abolished. The moral laws themselves have not been abolished, like we don't have to obey them, but the condemnation that comes from us not obeying them has been abolished through Christ. Paul is talking here about those nation laws. He's talking about those state laws. He's talking about the law of commandments expressed in, what did he say, ordinances, those laws that were regulating life and worship in Israel, those laws that the Jews took great pride in that made them distinct among all people, that marked them off from all people. They were intended under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. They were intended to separate God's people Israel from the rest of the world, but they were only intended to separate from the rest of the world until 
Christ came to create a new people. To create one people that is now for us the church. Christ had come, as Paul writes. Christ had come. And so those laws were no longer in effect. See if that rings true. That explanation as I read again verses 14 and 15. For he, that is Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And now verse 16 and something else, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Christ reconciles us to each other. We are no longer two people. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. There's Child of God, not child of God. There's believer and not a believer. God has reconciled us to each other. There are no longer two people. We are one people now together reconciled to God. No walls. No horizontal walls, no vertical walls, no walls between us as Christians and no walls between us and God. And this is the peace that Christ came and preached and continues to preach by his spirit through people like you and me, verses 17 and 18. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him, we both, all of us, believers, we have access in one spirit to the Father. We all as believers have access to God the Father through Christ. By faith alone. In Christ alone. No other laws in effect. No other regulations. No second steps. By faith alone. And so Paul can say in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Equals, that means, before God, what we just read in verse 18, we all through Christ have access to God the Father. So there we have what Christ accomplished on the cross from enmity to amity, from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. Christ abolished the law, that is the wall. Christ abolished the law that stood between them, these Gentiles and Jews, and between them and God, thus reconciling them to God and to one another, which brings us to part three. Verses 19 through 
22. We understand what they were. We understand what Christ did on the cross. And so what is the result of that? Here is what they were after the cross of Christ. Verse 19. So then, because of everything he's just said. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I think he's telling these Gentile Christians, he's saying, listen, regardless of what people have told you, regardless of what you've heard, Regardless of how you feel, they were part of the family of God. Well, so-and-so doesn't think so. So So-and-so doesn't treat me like that. I don't really feel like I'm part of the family of God. And Paul writes to these Gentile Christians and says, regardless of what you've been told, regardless of the hostility, regardless of the conflict, the fact is you are no longer strangers and aliens by the cross of Christ. You are fellow citizens with the saints. And you are members of the household of God. There are many different descriptions in the New Testament that are used to describe the church, the people of God. And Paul chooses here to use the family. The household of God. You see, he's comforting these Gentile Christians that were being made to feel that their faith in Christ was not enough. And Paul's word to them is, you are indeed part of the family of God. Verse 20, and you all as members of this household of God, you are built, he's continuing this metaphor of this household, this home, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So this family, the church, It's pictured now as a house. It was built on, Paul says here, the New Testament apostles and prophets. That's what he means. That's why it's in that order. Not prophets and apostles. That might mean prophets of the Old Testament and then the apostles. He also will clarify in chapter 3, verse 5, that when Paul uses prophets in Ephesians, he's talking about New Testament prophets after Christ. He's saying, you are built, as this household of God, you are built on the foundation of these teachers. In other words, this this home that you're in, it is built on the foundation, which is the Word of God. The Word of God, specifically the New Testament, it is the foundation beneath their feet, because in it, like us, they had come to know Christ. And Christ is, verse 20b, Christ Jesus himself, this foundation, he is the cornerstone. 
when you would lay a foundation in this day, you wouldn't do like we do and pour a foundation. You would lay a foundation, and that foundation would be made of stones. And the first stone that you would set for that foundation would, of course, be the most important stone. All the other stones that would be laid would be relative to that first stone. And that first stone was known as the corner stone. And Christ, Paul says, is the cornerstone of that foundation beneath us. Finally, verses 21 and 22, in whom, that's in Christ, the whole structure being joined together, he's explained that, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This reminded me of something similar that Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. He wrote, As you come to Him, as you come to Christ, He is a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, Christians, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so this is what these Gentiles were after the cross of Christ. They were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Alienation and hostility, it had been replaced with reconciliation and peace. In conclusion, we prayed at the start if you remember, but we prayed at the start of this sermon that God would use these words to remind us that because of the cross of Christ, there is not a single real wall separating us from God or from one another. And I used that, or I, I chose that word real, because a lot of times there's perceived walls. Like we think there's a wall between us and God as believers, or we think that there are walls between us and other believers, but they cannot, according to this text, be real. Because those walls have all been torn down. First, there is no wall between us and God. And this was really the point that Paul made in the first 10 verses of this chapter. But he refers to it again here. There is no wall between us and God. We were far off, but we have been brought near. Which is a comforting image. We were far off and we didn't find our way. We were brought near. And now we're told we have access to God. 
We have access to God. If you're a Christian, you have access to God at night, in the morning, during the day, in the woods, in the city, at work, in your home, among friends, when you're all alone, when you're sick, when you're suffering, when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're confident, when you're worried. You have 24-7 access to God through Christ. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, you could have this same access to God. You could have this same access to God today through Christ. Christ is the one who removes the wall that exists between you and God. That wall is sin. That wall is that you are, as a sinner, you are indifferent to God. You are disobedient to God. You've not lived the way that he has called you to live. Like all of us, even those of us who are Christians, the difference between us as Christians and you is that we have turned from our sin and we have turned to Christ. We're not better than you, but Christ is. And we've put our faith and our trust in him. We've learned through him just how sinful we are, and it's actually worse than we ever wanted to think. But we've learned that Christ is good, that he's kind, and that he has made a way for our salvation, that he came, that he lived and suffered, died, rose from the dead, and he did that in the place of sinners like me, maybe like you, so that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to God. So if you would hear that good news and hear that gospel and today believe and put your trust in Christ for your salvation, then you will have access to God forever. John 6, 37 is not exactly what Jesus said. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So let me just say that to you, if you're here and you are not a Christian, let me just quote Jesus when he says, whoever comes to me, that is, comes to me believing and trusting he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then also, Paul has made it clear that there was no wall between these Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And while we may not struggle with that same conflict today, it of course means that there is no wall between us and one another. 
It may feel like there are walls at times, but these walls, they are not real. They are walls that we have built, and so they're walls that we need to tear down. When Paul wrote this letter, you remember that wall that was at the temple, it still stood. That wall was still there. You could read Paul's words and you could go to Jerusalem and say, are you sure? Because I'm looking at this wall and it says, if I cross this line, I'm going to be killed. I mean, this sounds like there's still conflict. There's still hostility. And Paul writes and says, it's not real. It's not real. There's not actually a wall between you as Christians. There's nothing separating you. According to Armitage Robinson, referring to that wall outside the temple, it was already, by the time Paul writes, it was already antiquated, obsolete, out of date. So far as its spiritual meaning went, the sign, sure, the sign still stood, but the thing signified was broken down. There will always be division in the world. There will always be division in the world. There will always be walls among people in the world. But in the world is the church. In the world is the church, and the church is the people of God. And that church is spread out today all over the world in these outposts these local expressions, these local churches like Veritas. And what Paul says is very clear to us. In these churches and in the church, there is no true division. We should remember that. First Corinthians chapter 11. To prepare our hearts for communion. I want to read what Paul wrote again in verses 27 through 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup, which is what we will do today. In an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of of the Lord. In short, we should take seriously our time when we come together to the Lord's table, when we take the Lord's supper, when we take communion together. We should take it very seriously. We should pause everything that we're doing. We should do our best to discipline our mind for the next few minutes to be single-minded. And together to think about the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the securing of our salvation. To think about the unity, the walls that he tore down between us and himself, the walls that he tore down between us and each other. If you're visiting with us, you are, you're welcome to take communion with us if you are a baptized believer if you have turned from your sin and you have placed your faith in 
Jesus Christ. You've committed yourself to him. You've committed yourself to his body, to his people. And so you're committed to a local church, whether it's this one or another one that preaches the same gospel that you've heard here today. If that describes you, then we would love for you to take communion with us. We have leaders up front who will serve, and we ask you to come forward in the center aisles and then take those emblems and return to your seat. And if you would please wait, and then we'll take them together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word that you've given to us by your spirit through your man, Paul, and now to us today. God, there are some things in here that we find it difficult to relate to. So God, we ask that you would do your work of applying this to our hearts. God, help us to remember what those Gentile Christians needed to remember. And that is that there is who we were and there is who we are. And we have been united to you. We've been united to one another. That we have brought into your, been brought into your family and you are our heavenly father. And we now before you are brothers and sisters, you say. So God, I pray that you would give us courage to deal with any walls that are not real, but nevertheless exist between us and others. Uh, give us the wisdom and give us the help that we need so that we would be a pure reflection of you. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.